COVID put a whole new spin on those kinds of fears and but also provided a little cover, right? So if we crashed and burned in COVID, we wouldn't be alone. But it was the scariest I've been, most scared I've been since we were the early days of purchasing the business. And we took out, I want to be clear, we purchased the business, we had it appraised and we took out a loan. So when you owe the bank for those years that we're having to pay the bank and make the covenants and all of that, those were definitely early, scarier years. And it, we definitely gained perspective. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a little family fish business in Boston, Massachusetts, started in 1906 and is still going strong after 114 years and still run by the family that started it. Today, we are talking with Laura and Peter Ramsden, co-owners of Fully Fish. Fully Fish is a fish processor and distributor of sustainable fresh fish that has been going strong for 114 years. That is not a mistake. 114 years in business selling fish. You don't run into too many businesses that make it past three years, let alone 114. And before we get into the episode, I need to do my usual reminder. If you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts and ratings help us build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And I just realized it may be called Apple Podcasts, and I'm stuck in my old iTunes way. So please go over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show. In 2004, Laura and Peter Ramsden purchased the Foley Fish Company from Laura's parents, Mike and Linda Foley, making them the fourth generation of Foley and first generation Ramsden fishmongers. Laura is even referred to as the mongress. And I don't know about you, but I don't meet or talk with many mongresses. Or is it mongri? I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is I'm really excited for this episode. Over the past 20 years, Laura and Peter have poured themselves into the business so that Foley Fish will continue for another 114 years. During our conversation, we covered what it's like to work with your spouse, what it's like to get into business for yourself, and sustainability of ocean protein. And this is their story. I am here with Laura and Peter Ramsden, co-owners of Foley Fish. And I'm going to get right into it. Laura, what's Foley Fish? Mark, thanks for having us today. I uh, Foley Fish is a fourth-generation seafood processor. It was founded by my great-grandfather in 1906, and we specialize in sourcing, cutting, packing, and shipping all-natural fresh seafood. I'm not really good at math, and I'm literally doing math on my iPad right here. You would laugh even though um, I did go to college. But uh, So that's 114 years of b- being in business. Do I have that right? That is correct. 
Well, I, I could end this this interview right here, like right now. Like, I mean, there's not very many businesses that have been around for 114 years. Usually, they say the third generation screws it up by then. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so I mean, that, first of all, I just want to say congratulations. That's an amazing accomplishment. I can't wait to hear about that and a little bit more and, and how you got there. But 1906. And so, what was your grandfather's name? He was the original MF Foley. And then we had Francis Michael Foley, my grandfather, Frank. And then my dad is Michael Foley. And then me, Laura Foley. And yes, I do have a brother, Michael Foley, but he is a successful writer and producer in Los Angeles. So people often ask me, didn't you have a brother? (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) And he he carried on the MF. I was about to say, you got the LF, but... uh, Uh, Yes, yes, I'm the the LF. LF. So MF Foley in 1906, would it just give us a little sense of what the business looked like then? I mean, what what, what was going on and what, what did the world look like in 1906 from a fishmonger perspective? So interestingly enough, my dad is 79 and he is just submitting to the publisher a book called Swimming Upstream that details the whole history of Foley fish. And my dad does not type and he had my daughter, our daughters, and me typing his chapters. So we learned a lot more about what life was like in 1906 than we would have ever known uh, otherwise. And it was horse and buggies in the streets of Boston. Our original plant was in the Faneuil Hall Marketplace. It was originally designed to be seafood, that fish that was purchased in the morning and then delivered to the cooks in the back bay it was back in the day when the Irish were primarily servants in Boston. So he was the trusted Irish fishmonger down in Faneuil Hall that the that the cooks in the Back Bay area would use as a resource. And the business uh, grew from there to when we ha- started having uh, railway traffic uh, trains that uh, my grandfather was the one that when the uh, fish could get sent by train, we would send them in these wood barrels filled with ice. But uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a much different industry in some regards. And in some ways, it was uh, very similar to what we do today. Yeah, like how much fish was was coming through at that time? Do you have any sense of that? Like, it, like especially as you compare it to to what you're processing today? So the mix of species is very different today. There was no farmed salmon back then. Uh, so the, the preponderance of the species were local and having been involved in fishery management, I can tell you that the quantities of seafood, local seafood being landed were vast, excuse me, vastly different. We actually would send out monthly bulletins to all of our customers. And so we have some of those original bulletins and it's super interesting to see species that, were being sold then and the pricing that they were being sold at versus what is available today. So things like actual wild Atlantic salmon was something that was available back in 1906 that is not a commercial commercially viable species now that all of the wild salmon is coming out of places like Alaska and Washington and Oregon now. So definitely the product mix was different. We weren't in in that time selling uh, imported species. It was all things being landed right here, your cod, your haddock, your sole, your scallops, shellfish. 
I'm just so fascinated by the history of it. And again, just knowing that 114 years has gone by and still still selling fish out of Foley Fish. So let me, and was it called Foley Fish back then? Yep. It was, so it's technically the MF Foley Company, uh, but people refer to it as Foley Fish. And, and I'll have people come up to me if I'm doing a demo, cooking demo in a store, one of our accounts, People will say, oh, I know Foley Fish, or people will call and say, I've got the original book that they put together about species. Do you want a copy from 1929? There are just some really fun artifacts that are floating around New England and beyond. I mean, I've had people call me from cleaning out their grandmother's house in Pittsburgh, and the, you know, the grandfather was a chef and menus with the Foley name on it. It's kind of fun to have have people reach out and, and send us different things for, that we, the company had put out over the years. Peter, it sounded like you might have had something to add to that. Oh, I just was going to offer up that. Um, so you guys are asked about volumes. And so, you know, initially from, as the Lord tells us, um, it's the history goes is literally he was selling fish. MF was selling fish out of a push cart and then, you know, horse and buggy up into the back bay to the brownstone kitchens and whatnot. But things did clearly grow rapidly with the ability to put product on trains. And then later in the fifties on, uh, as the highway system got built out on trucks. So, um, you know, one of the way we have of measuring the business was, you know, the initial space was a, uh, just the floor level space, uh, in a flat iron building, as Laura said, in the Fannie Hall area um, that it was being leased. And eventually the company occupied four floors of that building and, and bought the building. So clearly things were going in the right direction in that first 25 to 30 years. I think the building was originally owned by Harvard, actually. So my great-grandfather felt a lot of pride at being able to buy the building. I bet. Well, you know, one of my favorite questions to kick off an episode, which is going to be funny now to to ask this or maybe not, is is always like uh, something to the effect of, did you always think you would be a dot, dot, dot? And so my question <laughs> for you is growing up, did you always think that you were going to be the fishmongers or did or a fishmonger or like, what were you thinking, especially like when you're like eight and your your folks are running this, this, uh, this fish business? Did you want to be in the fish business or do you want nothing to do with it? So interestingly enough, my dad uh, went to college, graduated, worked at Foley Fish for a year and saw no room for advancement. He had graduated from Harvard and my grandfather promptly put him as the freezer man. And he said, I think I can do more with my education. So he moved with my mother and I was a baby to Chicago. So for the first 10 years of my life, my dad was a commercial lender for Continental Bank. And my mom went back to law school and was an attorney. And I didn't know there was a fish company. So we moved when I was in fifth grade. And it was so that my dad could open the Foley Fish New Bedford plant because my grandfather saw that there was a great opportunity to sell restaurant quality fish in retail and do a branded Foley program. And I was so angry because my mother's whole family lived in Chicago. I would walk to my grandma and grandpa's every morning for breakfast and my parents would go to the train. And I thought, you know, he was upending my whole world. So I, I definitely at eight, nine and 10 did not think I was going to be a fishmonger. And then I, I 
came back to the Midwest to go to college and then worked in public relations in Chicago and then public relations in Boston. And it, I had done work in the summers in high school for Foley's, but no, I didn't think that that's where the my path would take me. And I just was thinking about in preparation for the interview. I literally, I started working at Foley Fish when I was 14 and now I'm 51 and that is higher math for me as an English major. But that's a lot of years and I don't, I, I didn't anticipate this being sort of such a bulk of my career, but I definitely felt very, very lucky to be in a career and working on a team of people so committed to a mission and something that I was so passionate about. I think that that is, can be rare, especially for a woman trying to juggle a family and career. Yeah. And so what about you, Peter? Did you have a future <laughs> laid out Peter. for you in fish? Were you like, hey, someday I'm going to be the fish guy? Well, clearly when Laura and I started dating, I, I did know about the fish business, even though she was currently then in public relations. Um, I was a, a, a money manager, an investment professional at the time, a business school graduate, and um, had no intention of getting involved in the seafood processing world. And indeed, there were a lot of jokes at our rehearsal dinner about <laughs> if I ever lose my financial acumen, that I could you know, fall back and, and come to work and put on the rubber boots and come to work in the fish plant. So, but no, uh, it was not an expectation. And it wasn't until the late 90s, um, you know, some 20 plus years ago, um, that my in-laws, Mike and Linda Foley, the third generation owners, approached us to say, you know, they needed an exit strategy and their primary and, and best alternative for, for making that happen would be to sell it to us. Uh, and they thought that we'd be a good pair to run it for another generation. That sounds like a lot of pressure, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, they come to you and they say, you are only hope. Uh, we, we need, we, and you already know this thing's been going for three generations. I'm sure there's a ton of pride, a ton of not only like internal family pride, but also just the people you take care of at the plant. I know how it goes. Uh, and at the business, people that work for you and, and, and you take a real sense of ownership and, and a sense of family a lot of times with, with, with people and a sense of responsibility. Like when they came to you and said that, was that like a really great moment or was it like a, oh no moment? Well, I, they were fairly uh, straightforward, but also fair about it in the sense that they said, yeah, you know, we'll, we can treat this like a business school case study and we'll spend the next three or four months talking about it. And, um, you know, and I'll, we'll decide whether this business is attractive enough that someday we'd want to own the whole thing. And um, so, no, I, I do think we always had an option to say no. Um, but it's the more that Laura and I thought about it, the more excited we got about it and the idea of working together and being owners um, clearly to us was at the time was greener grass. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I don't I don't ever regret doing what we did. But, you know, clearly our lives were very different. At the time, we were living in Connecticut and I was telecommuting for Foley Fish, helping out on marketing projects and doing sales calls. But Peter was working in New York City and we had little kids and we thought, oh, wow, running a small family business will have more. It'll be better quality of life than 
commuting, living in Fairfield County, it'll just be a, a better pace, a better environment for raising our children. And that was definitely attractive. But what I didn't fully appreciate was that while I was going to be fourth generation, this was Peter's first generation ownership, and he attacked it as if this was day one of this company. And he has put in blood, sweat, tears, time beyond. And he literally, the the first year that we were transitioning, I took a year off to have our third child and get us all settled in Rhode Island and get the kids acclimated and, you know, in all their activities and everything, but also to give him space to join the company. And he literally did every single job in both plants, whether it was being the freezer guy for a month, the cooler person for a month, the receiver for a month. And he brought his business school eye, and my dad had his MBA too, but just he just brought this fresh eye to every area of operations in both plants. He went on the road to all over the country with our salespeople. He upgraded our sales materials because my dad was doing everything on flip charts and Pete is body bullet point with computers. So yes, while it was a lot of certainly, you know, we, we took it very seriously that we were going to, it was on our shoulders to carry the business forward the energy and enthusiasm and time that Peter brought to the business was very much like a first generation owner. And I really believe the company uh, was better for it. And it's a lot of the reason why we were sustained for a fourth generation, because he really, he gave his, he gave his all and he has given his all and then some to, to, to both plants. Laura's, of course, being way over generous with that, but that's a loving wife speaking. And um, and thankfully, it did work out now. Um, 27 years into marriage and 20 years into ownership. So, but, but it was a big investment up front to uh, convert myself from being a money manager to a fish processor. <laughs> some would say, you, some would say mean, there's not much of a difference right <laughs> he, he literally i mean the dry cleaning bills went to nothing he literally was shopping you know walmart for like the carhartt pants and the boots and the whole thing you know all the brooks brothers suits sat in the closet i mean it was a complete transformation well, and as you're 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 mucking up fish guts and you're doing the dirty work, and because we all know when you have a business, you know people think that's all glamour, and you're just sitting there, you know, on the receiving end of of wealth and benefit and all this stuff. But no, I mean the real, you know, the the reality is is you're in the trenches, you're doing the work, you're 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 sweating whether or not you can make payroll sometimes, and you know, were, did you have those moments where you were like, what did we get ourselves into? Uh, from my standpoint, I absolutely did. You know, I don't mind physical work, but there's a lot of it in this business. And, um, you know, thankfully, I'm now at 56. Um, that The company doesn't rely on my back for that. But, you know, when I was in my mid-30s, just to learn the business, I was doing a lot. And, you know, I would stop and think, gee, it was just, uh, you know, six months ago that, I was in an office overlooking Central Park <laughs> um, and I wasn't smelling like fish. So, yes, absolutely. You stop and say, is this, is this really, did I make the right decision? Is this really worth it? And all that. So it's a big transition. I'm sure. And, you know, 
putting myself in, in your shoes, like both of you, like on one hand, I'd be like really excited. I'd be like, this is a great opportunity, as you mentioned, to 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 change, you know, our lifestyle, have a different, a different way of life for our family and, and all that kind of stuff. But like I would also be really scared of like screwing this thing up. Did you ever have any of those feelings? Were you ever thinking to yourself, like, like, what if we mess this up? Like we're we're the generation that 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 screws up fully fish. Yeah, I wasn't sure who's gonna answer that. Of course, of course. I uh, am, I'm super competitive. And so anytime we were going to lose a customer, or lose, I'm also a warrior on top of that. So uh, definitely sleepless nights, definitely concern, definitely fear, but also faith that it, Peter is much better. Let me just say this. Peter is much better than I am at looking at the big picture and looking down the road. And it's only literally 20 years in that I can say, oh, it's okay. These things happen. A shipment gets missed. Somebody forgot something on an order. Whatever it is that I used to be completely you know, distraught over uh, something happening in the business on a day-to-day basis, you, you definitely get some perspective. You're like, all right, the, the whole world is not going to end. It's not going to crash. Now, that being said, covid put a whole new spin on those kinds of fears and, but also provided a little cover, right? So if we crashed and burned in COVID, we wouldn't be alone, but it was the scariest I've been, most scared I've been since we were the early days of purchasing the business. And we took out, I want to be clear, we purchased the business, we had it appraised and we took out a loan. So when you owe the bank for those years that we're having to pay the bank and make the covenants and all of that. Those were definitely early, scarier years. And it, we definitely gained perspective and confidence as well. I mean, the, the things that people say to us about our product, about our fish, about our team, about our drivers, the feedback it is just for generations. I mean, we have customers that have worked with my grandfather, my father, and me. And Peter, and it is that is so affirming that we we have to be doing something right here. You know? um, so that that's been helpful. But but yes, there have been there have been dark days and sleepless nights for sure. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about how COVID's affected the business. Like, what did you see? I could, I, you know, I have no idea uh, what you're going to say, but I can imagine it going either way. Like, what what, what have you seen on your side of the business? Yeah, our business um, is has transitioned really from the 80s to current much more focused on restaurants hotels country clubs and resorts we had a lot of exposure to the businesses that were were closing down or being forced to shut down by the governors around the country while maintaining some really strong important specialty retail uh relationships which kept us going thank god correct so so we definitely saw a huge fall off towards the end of March in our day-to-day business. And, um, and that was, uh, as an operating company, you, uh, you know, two facilities and a, a total staff of about 85. Uh, we were very concerned about how we might find a pass forward without the revenues coming in. Yeah, I can imagine it's very scary and, and everyone is going through it now. And it's one of these things that we, we still don't have the answers to, but we're we're all doing our best. And so I see that, you know, one of the things 
that you've you've gone ahead and done is is offering more of a direct consumer product. Is is that in response to COVID or is that in the works uh, prior? Yeah. So I had a friend. People often say, "I've got people coming to town. Can can I get those crab claws? Can I get some oysters?" We sort of have this sort of side hustle with our friends that uh, will will do put a cash sale in and, and bring them home, whatever they're looking for. But I had a friend say to me, I've got all these kids home, 20 year olds from, you know, 20 somethings from New York and Boston and the college kids are home. And can you get me some fish? And I thought, you know, that's probably happening everywhere. And also people don't want to go to the grocery store because at that time we still really thought you could get COVID from surfaces and people were were very nervous about leaving their homes. So I said, well, what if we took our fish and created protein packs so that they, oh, and I know the other thing was on the radio stations, every time I turned to a different station, people were joking about sending their husbands to the store and all they were coming back with was processed food, you know, all sorts of chips and cookies and anything that was shelf stable, but there was nothing healthy in the mix. So people were just or constantly complaining that they didn't have, they, they couldn't subsist on pasta for six months. So we needed to ha- have something that was a healthy protein to introduce to balance all the sort of middle of the store things that the husbands were throwing in the carts. And so I thought, oh, wow, if we could create some frozen protein packs that people could keep in their freezer and just pull fish out as they need it, and it would limit the time going to the store, and it would be something that would be helpful during COVID. And I literally put, hey, we have this idea in our little town COVID response Facebook page, and I got immediate response, please, please, please do it, do it, do it. And so we had just done a new website that had just launched a few months earlier that it sold some gear on it. And so we said to our website people, hey, if we create these protein packs, can we? Can you help us get it loaded onto the site? And we ended up partnering with, with Shopify and creating these four pound units of salmon, a variety pack, a swordfish pack, a scallop and lobster pack. And I can't even tell you the response was crazy. And we kept getting all these local, we would deliver locally and we would ship. And first we started with the post office and because the post office had no mail at the time, but what we didn't know is that they were slammed with packages and they couldn't track and they couldn't locate. And Pete and I are dropping all these little boxes to the first to the New Bedford post office and then to Providence and the pouring rain and they're losing half the things and we're writing all these credits and it was terrible. So then we went to UPS and they weren't much better, but they were a little better. And um, we figured out that we should only ship Monday through Wednesday because they lost things at trailers over the weekend. But it was a steep learning curve, but we really learned. And what was incredible was the response was almost religious. I mean, people were so appreciative and so thankful for frozen fish and what we realized is that the majority of what people had been eating frozen had been chemically treated or was leftover fish. And here we were taking fresh fish right off the line, 
you know, it was portioned and then we were hand packing it, Pete and me and people in the sales office. We were all out there doing it together and getting it in the freezer. So people were getting fish that was fresh literally 24 hours prior. And the response was tremendous. And we had all of these local people in Barrington in our town that were ordering twice a week. And so our girls would help us because they were home from college and they would ride the van and we would make deliveries together and we'd talk about routes and neighborhoods and it just became this whole family sort of little mini business. And it actually reminded me back to my great grandfather's day because so we said four generations later we're delivering door to door again. I don't know if that's success or not, but it was uh, it it has been a neat pivot and the month where our business dropped 85%, it was the number two gross profit contributor. So I thought, well, it, you know, it helped keep a few lights on. So that was good. Well, that's, that's excellent. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com, and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. As you were talking, like the thing that jumped out at me was when you mentioned that most people are experiencing chemically treated fish, fish that's maybe not what they think it is. And I don't think, you know, I don't, I'm not really well educated on this topic. And I don't think a lot of people are like, like, what don't we know about fish? Like what, what's going on that, that just we're not aware of. So fish is your most perishable protein. And as a result of that, people, industry, practice is to add preservatives and we don't do that. Let me just start by saying that fully fish has always been hundred percent natural and we are hundred percent natural, but sadly there aren't a lot of regulations in seafood for labeling of additives. So a lot of fish will go into a brine tank that will bleach out the yellowing that would be a telltale sign of aging. So instead of the filet getting yellow, they put it into the uh, brine tank and it bleaches it nice and white and it picks up a little water weight. So now the six ounces is an eight ounce. So they'll get more money for fish that is fish plus water. It's very prevalent in scallops. They add things like sodium tripolyphosphate or um, they have natural oxides, a citric oxide called Altessa or something called Tequisa. There are all these sort of additives that are designed to mask aging and preserve the product and also add false water weight. And so all of those... Go ahead. Many of those chemicals are... Uh, fall under 
a general description known as a moisture enhancers or moisture retainers. So um, they're they're okayed by the FDA as just as retaining attributes of seafood as opposed to being fraudulent or uh, being a chemical that needs to be explicitly identified. So it's just part of the process. And is that something that, you know, is in most of the fish that we're consuming? Like, how do we, how do we identify that or, or, or know that, or at least be educated to know that that's what we're consuming? So I think if you're buying fish at the big box retailers, you are probably ha- having that. If you are, uh, if you take a scallop and you put it in a pan and you, you, you try to brown it and it won't brown, uh, or it has that marshmallowy texture, then that's got the STP or the Altesa, Altesa in it. If you are at a sushi bar and your tuna is watermelon pink, that pink color, that is tuna that's been exposed to gas. And with the gas bursts all the blood vessels to keep it always red, even um, though it's all been frozen. So that that would be a telltale sign. Tuna is not that naturally that watermelony pinky color that you see at the sushi bars. So I hate to introduce fear of eating seafood because I want everyone to love fish and eat fish, but it is a discerning factor and soaked fish or chemically treated fish because they can take older fish that's of lower value and add weight to it and mask aging is a money maker and it for the processor but also the people who are buying are are paying a lower price than they would for an all-natural fish so i would just say that if your listeners are out seeing some great deal it would be buyer beware to me because typically fish that isn't priced appropriately is fish that has had uh, some soaking at some point during the process yeah, and thanks for that. And like, we'll, we'll we'll change, we'll shift a little bit instead of talking about what to be worried about. Like you mentioned that you want everyone to love and enjoy fish, and beyond it being good for the business. Like, why is that? What what's so great about fish, and and why do you want people? Why do you think people should have it as part of their diet, and why do you think it's important? So I would always encourage people to select fish as your protein. It is the most lean, healthful protein that you can consume in terms of calorie for calorie. The health benefits are incredible. Uh, A piece of cod, 90 calories for three ounces, I think about 12 grams of protein, low in fat. It's extremely digestible, all seafood. It is... So delicious. When people say they don't eat any seafood, I think, how can you not eat anything out of the sea? That's like saying you don't eat land food. So if you eat it, it's so diverse that what a clam or a mussel or a you know a piece of lobster or a piece of tuna or sword or sole or halibut or salmon, it all tastes so different. So even if you've tried one fish that isn't your favorite thing, try something else because there's such diversity of flavors and textures that come out of the ocean. You're depriving yourself if you you don't get to experience, find something that you love because it really, there's just such a vast amount of delicious options coming out of the ocean and it's all so healthy. I think 
that America would be in such a better place in terms of our fight against obesity and our uh, rising healthcare costs if more people ate seafood. All right. Well, imagine it's your birthday and you're having fish. What are you having? It's so funny that you asked that. It was my dad's birthday last night and we cooked lemon sole for him, which is a giant blackback flounder. And uh, it's so delicious and sweet and great. So that I, I, I think I would have, the, I would go with the, with the lemon sole. I might start with a little tuna tartare because I do like that. Uh, but I, I think I would have the lemon sole. Pete, what about you? Well, being in this business, um, you know, definitely has its perks. And I've always loved shellfish and particularly oysters. So any time it's any time to celebrate is a time to shuck oysters for me. That's a, a you know week I can walk out into our cooler on any given day and have a a choice of fifteen to twenty different oysters to take home. So, but uh, yeah, I grew up uh, fishing on Cape Cod my whole life as a kid, and uh, so striped bass and bluefish and, and flounder are amongst my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think what my favorite would be, but uh, you know, probably I, I I love a great salmon. Uh, but so, uh, thank you for that. And so, Laura, when you were like listing off all the previous family members that had owned and worked in the business, something that really struck me was that they were all men. And mm-hmm. you know, being a woman who is now the co-owner of the business, face of the business, one of the the main leaders of the business. I have to imagine that there's some challenges uh, being a, a woman in a what I perceive, and I've never worked in a, in a fish uh, processing plant or a fish business, but predominantly male business. Is, 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 is it challenging? So I'm in big trouble because my mom is was actually co-owner with my dad. So uh, I should have mentioned her. It was Linda and Mike Foley were the third generation owners. And when they went to do all of the branding with the retail line of fish that was all her so i do need to step back and give proper credit we have a wall in the plant that has my great-grandfather my grandfather my father and me and my mother and peter are not on the walls so it's called the blood wall <laughs> so they, they tease a little about how they should be up there uh, with us but uh so to answer your question i I actually haven't had issues with being a woman in the fish business. And sometimes, to be honest, I think it works to my advantage because sometimes when you get a vendor coming in and there's a chef in the kitchen and dominantly the chefs are male, though there are some amazing women chefs, but generally in the industry, there are males. Sometimes you get the male vendor with the male chef and you've got a lot of ego and Sometimes it's easier for me to go into a kitchen than I think it is because it's not as uh, guarded and they don't get their backup that someone's going to try to sell, be all salesy with them. So uh, if anything, I think it's it's worked to my advantage. And I also think I don't take it for granted that walking in as a Foley, a Foley fish gives me advantages that another woman might not have. So I, I do recognize that I'm lucky in that regard, but the people on my team, you know, I work side by side with them out on the floor and they'll say, Oh, can I, can I carry that for you? Or can I open that? 
door for you or whatever. And no, 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 I've got it. I've got it. So they don't see me as a sort of this princess who walks around in high heels. I mean, I put the boots on and go out there. So I think that's helpful as well. And what about running a business and owning a business with your spouse? And this is for both of you. Like, you know, I, was there concern there when you took on the business? I, you know, I, I, when I think of opportunities like this with my spouse, I'm always like, I don't know. Or like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a moment to think about because it's a really big deal. So what's it like uh, owning a business with your spouse? I'd say it's a risk that we probably didn't really give proper attention to or truly think through. I mean, it could have been disastrous and it could have been the end of our marriage potentially. Thankfully, it didn't go that way. And as we look back upon it, we can say it really did work out well because we have such complementary skill set. And there was plenty of turf for each to get involved with the business and complement one one another. And so, as I said, I, I get involved much more in management and operations and financial side of the business and Laura more so on the marketing and sales. Although as a Foley, you know, you're always involved in selling and customer service. But I think that's helped a lot. Uh, Laura can also chime in, but I think, you know, we, we do a pretty good job of trying to turn it off, um, you know, at the, at the dinner table or over the weekend. <laughs> the kids would disagree. <laughs> so, you know, trying to compartmentalize um, and so make sure that we have time as, as a couple and not just as business partners. But, and I would say a couple of things just to add, to echo what Peter said, distinct division of duties is the key for sure. When I'm looking over his shoulder and his turf about something or he and mine, we can, we can each bristle, but it, having our own sort of areas it is has certainly been helpful. Having two plants that are 60 miles apart is also helpful. You go to your corner, I go to mine. But in a really positive thing is that the highs are so much higher when you share them with your spouse. The account win, the even the extra item. I mean, we had a customer the other day and Pete said, oh, really? Two items? And then the because re- it was a long drive and then the rest of the order came in later. And I said, Pete, look, they've got six more things on their order. And it was the littlest thing, but he could absolutely understand that win. And so in some regards, I think, gosh, our marriage is that much better because we truly understand. I'm never thinking, where is he? Why isn't he home from work? They're taking advantage of him. Why is he working such long hours? Because I know exactly where he is and why he's there. And I'm thankful that he's putting that time in. And so I think it's great. It's created a strong partnership and a really... He, he understands if I'm stressed, why I'm stressed, and he can really help in laying things out if there, there's a problem because he knows exactly what's going on and vice versa, although he tends to be more the, the, the calmer downer that, that I am. But uh, certainly, you know, we've traveled together, we've given presentations together. We, we got to go to the Hershey Lodge uh, right before COVID hit and do all these weight staff trainings. And we have a really good time being out there visiting customers and seeing what people are doing with our seafood. And again, it, um, it, it, I think it really enhances our partnership. 
So I've been thinking a lot, you know, about businesses that stand the test of time. And one of the things that really keeps coming back that I notice is this idea of relevancy and reinventing the business and staying relevant, that it's not a set it and forget it kind of uh, methodology. It's it's a constant um, balance between returning to the the core values of and the core mission of the business, as well as is evolving as the world around the business evolves. And so how do you approach relevancy and keeping fully fish relevant? How do you keep it modern yet traditional? Like, how do you approach that? We definitely, uh, doing the new website, which was, you know, an investment that we had to make the decision. Do people really even look at websites? Do they, is it really important? We're, we're, we're fish cutters. Why do we need to have a, a, a beautiful website? And it was a super smart decision, especially when COVID hit and we could pivot uh, and have that right in place. That was terrific. But adding products, you know, when we think about, our, should we carry this or shouldn't we carry this? And is there a market for it? Those are all, we're, we're constantly saying, well, we need to do this to stay relevant. So we can't just have, in my dad's day, we had one oyster. Now we have 15 oysters and we're telling the different stories of oysters. If we had stayed strict and said, we don't need to have all these oysters from Maine and Canada and Cape Cod and Connecticut, people would have gone elsewhere. So really responding and staying relevant to what your customers are looking for is super important in this business where chefs and retailers and purchasing agents have choices. So we have to make sure that our company stays relevant by offering goods and services that differentiate us. Back in my day, we only had one oyster. Totally. totally. <laughs> That's I, I just can imagine that the uh, the family table, that that conversation. Why do you need so many oysters? And so and well, and salmon, yeah. salmon didn't count. Like, why would you have farm salmon? That's not a real fish. Mm-hmm. Now it's, you know, like our number one seller. Yeah. We've become much more uh, service oriented too as a company, and and that's not that we've always had, you know, people who on the customer interface side, but for the longest time, uh, we sold whole fish and fillets and in, in very basic processing. But as we became more and more involved with high end hotels and uh, larger group restaurants that were very specific about how they wanted the fish to present on the plate. And, you know, it forced us into portioning programs. In effect, with the expertise we have in our facilities, we became custom butchers and fabricating the precise cuts, you know, a seven and a half ounce on the bias square cut salmon portion or a T-bone 12 to 14 ounce halibut cut. So these are the kind of things that you know maybe you expect when you go to your local butcher, uh, but it's something that as a you know we're not a mechanized operation. We're very much a cut to order, especially fish house, and uh, that has been a pivot for sure to keep us relevant. And, and kind of in that vein, like what what's the role of sustainability? What's, what role does that play at Fully Fish? So when the Sustainable Fisheries Act went in in the early 90s and vast fishing areas were closed and availability became tight and prices rose and 
it was pretty uh, impactful for Foley Fish. My dad said, we've got to get involved so that we understand better what what's going on with management and sustaining the fisheries. And so we've actually been involved in fishery management in one way or another since the early 90s and really trying to understand what how we define sustainable and what species we should be promoting and why. And so we've had people working on the ground fish advisory panel that advises the fishery management council on basically the targets and the science around the ground fish stocks here in New England. Uh, also someone working on the highly migratory species panel, understanding the rules and regs on sword and tuna so that way back, you know, when there was a swordfish boycott, we could really speak to that to our customers and explain to them that it was the U.S. that were actually the most sustainable fishery in the world and that we shouldn't be boycotting them. <laughs> we should be promoting because we're going to lose the quota and our guys are the ones with the right gear. But uh, so we really use our involvement. I was on, um, I was appointed by Governor Patrick as an actual fishery manager for three years on the New England Fishery Management Council one of eight fishery councils that manage the, the federal waters of the United States. And so when you sit in all of these meetings, I was on the ground fish committee, the skate committee and the scallop committee, you, you're privy to all the science coming out of Woods Hole. And so I could say, wow, they're fishing in these areas. The open areas for scallops this year are going to be these areas. And you're literally on these, in these committees with fishermen and scallopers and you're learning about, okay, well, that area is going to be yielding more of the U10 jumbo scallops, or these areas are going to be yielding more of the 3040s or 2030s. And so what we tried to do is use the information that we were gleaning from our involvement to direct menus and retail uh, promotions towards species that were abundant. So when people would come, we do a fully school of fish pre-COVID. We would do it, you know, four times a year. And we would do all sorts of menu planning, literally breakfast, lunch, and dinner. People are eating fish that would come visit us and showing them monkfish and pollock and skate and uh, Acadian redfish and hake and all of these species that we knew to be abundantly harvested with strong biomass. And so we really tried to use our knowledge are to educate our customers and direct them towards the most sustainable species coming out of our waters so that they could really differentiate their menus because some crazy percentage, I don't know what the exact number is now, but you know, 92% of seafood in America is imported. So if every other menu in the U.S. is featuring all this pasteurized crab meat from Indonesia and tilapia and you know, Chilean salmon, that if they started putting these species on their menus that were sustainable, harvested right here in New England, they were going to have differentiable menus. So different, you know, competitive, competitive advantage, but also because these species were abundant, the price points were going to be lower so that they could actually make money while differentiating their menu while offering a sustainable species. So that was sort of our trifecta of recommendations to trying to, you know, get New England fish on menus across the country and really support the small fishermen who were operating under tremendous regulation to ensure that the fisheries of New England stays sustainable. 
And so what does the future look like for Foley Fish? One day at a time, Mark. <laughs> Do you know if the next generation will be targeted to... Are, are you planning that talk where you're going to sit your kids down and say, hey, it's up to you. You're our only hope. So our son is a teacher and a, a Spanish teacher and a coach, and he loves the the world of education. And our other daughter is is uh, headed to is in banking in hopefully New York City one of these days. And then our other daughter is still in college. So I don't think we're tapping them quite yet. So we're um, we're still young. I'm only fifty one, and he's fifty six. So we've got some time to figure that out. Most certainly. I mean, if that's any indication, I notice a, notice it's a pattern for those who have pursued a career in banking to abandon that to come work at the uh, come work at Foley Fish. It looks like that's not not only uh, Peter's uh, story, but uh, I think one of your either your father, or your grandfather's. I read on the website as well. Yes, yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm gonna I am gonna remind her of that tonight. I have one last question for for the both of you. If you ran into your 20-year-old self today. What do you think that they'd say seeing where you are now? Okay, I'll start. <laughs> I think my 20-year-old self would say, gee, it all worked out. And boy, that's not anything like what I was anticipating. But I'm glad it worked out. And it's a cert- certainly seems like a nice life. What would my 20-year-old self say to 51-year-old me? Exactly. What would what, 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 she say? What the heck are you doing back in Barrington, Rhode Island with three kids in the fish business? She would definitely say that. I told my parents I was never coming back to this small town in Rhode Island and all these people in Rhode Island that work for their family businesses and they never left. And here I am. (laughs) My 20 year old thought she was so smart. And yet, as Pete said, it's a great life and a great community. And being at this family business that I thought was so somewhere I would never come back to has been just a really wonderful life experience that I feel really now my 51-year-old self realizes I'm so fortunate to have had this opportunity. And that is Laura and Peter Ramsden of Foley Fish. I love the idea of a business existing for 114 years. The only way a business can stay relevant that long is to reinvent itself and evolve with the times. The Ramsdens have done exactly that. And I'm looking forward to what the future brings for Foley Fish. I, for one, am going to their website and ordering a couple of protein packs right after I'm done recording this. A big thank you to Laura and Peter and the team at Foley Fish. Keep bringing in the fresh fish and we'll keep eating it. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Laura and Peter, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 